Um, so thanks to everyone for joining us. Welcome to this uh, North London uh, Workers' Liberty uh, educational discussion. I think those sort of geographical uh, kind of geographical unit that's uh, organised the meeting is ir irrelevant really in uh, this this kind of world. So um, welcome to comrades from North London and further afield. Um, this is the second session in an educational discussion series that we're running on um, the state, crime, prisons and policing. Um, it's running on alternate Mondays at 7.30. The first session last time looked at um, the question of what is the state, how Marxists have historically understood and analysed the state. And tonight we're going to be looking at the question of the police, um, some history as to where the institution of the police comes from and what contemporary role um, the police play. Our speaker tonight is going to be um, Ellie Clark, um, who in a uh, gesture of... Um, geographical uh, conciliation we're allowing to speak at our meeting despite the fact that she abandoned us for South London so uh, nice to have you back Ellie um, so the, the format of the session we're going to have a talk from Ellie she's going to speak for about 20 minutes and then we'll have time for questions and discussions hopefully there'll be lots of questions and comments um, that people want to make um, I'll probably take Ellie back a few times throughout that to respond to the discussion um, and then um, just before I bring Ellie back at the end to sort of summate, um, we'll take some announcements about um, upcoming events. Um, so I think that's about all that needs to be said in introduction. So um, with that done, I'm going to unmute Ellie and she can kick us off. Yes. Hi. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, Daniel covered what I'm, I'm going to talk a little bit about the, the police, kind of where the institution came from. And I am going to talk a little bit about the wider criminal justice system because I, it's kind of impossible not to when you're having these sorts of discussions. Um, I'm just going to read verbatim off my screen because you're all muted anyway, which I find really weird because I can't hear you laughing or shouting at me. <laughs> so it's hard to get a gauge of what's going on. So if it sounds a little bit like I'm reading a script, I apologise. I am reading a script. Um, so, yeah, without any further ado, I guess I'm going to get into it. Um, I started looking at this topic a few years ago in response to the Labour Party, actually, because they had begun being quite vocally um, calling for more police and more police funding, seemingly because in the context of rising violent crime, it was an easy stick to beat the Tories with. Um, at the time, a lot of CLPs, including my own, were passing quite gushingly pro-police motions. And kind of in my guts, I knew that this wasn't right. Um, and it was actually very unhelpful, especially in the context of rising violent crime. But obviously, when you're faced with a scared and grieving community, so uh, my area particularly was hit by really, was hit really quite hard, actually, by um, a territory war at the time. And so we had a, we had a lot of dead kids on our conscience. Um, and so in, in response to that, you can't just shout fuck the police because it's not going to cut it. You need to have an understanding of how the institution works and, and why it's not helpful in response to a situation like that. So one thing that really surprised me, actually, when I first started looking into this is how uh, is actually like how much cognitive dissonance I was seeing um, and how much. Sorry, can you bear with me one second? My computer's doing something really awful. Um, uh, 
Yeah, so one thing that that surprised me um, was quite how much cognitive disconnect I was seeing from otherwise quite good socialists. I think most socialists do understand the role that the police play during heightened times of class struggles, such as during things like the minor strike or even the student uprising of kind of 2010, 2011. However, they really struggle to sort of connect that with how the police behave on a day-to-day basis in certain communities towards certain groups of people. I get it. Um, Basically, the entirety of bourgeois culture is telling you that the police are a force for good and that they're there for your protection. And if you're kind of not seeing the sharp end of how they behave every day, that idea um, can be really hard to get past. So I guess it's worth starting with a very basic socialist explanation explanation of what role the police actually play in society. So as a socialist, my beef with the police is not just about hostility to some of the social roles they play, although I do also have that as well. Um, Importantly, I do not believe the police as an institution can ever be meaningfully reformed. At the very heart, at their very heart, the police exist to oppress the working class and to defend private property. Any other useful function that they have, I think, is an accidental byproduct of that. So the modern police as a professional centrally organised force started to come about in the 1800s. Famously, Robert Peel invented the Met Police in 1829, and this is seen as the beginning of modern policing. However, this had already been going on all over the country through local acts for a while as a reaction to urbanisation during the industrial era. Before Robert Peel became Home Secretary, he was actually the Chief Secretary for Ireland and found that local magistrates were unfit to maintain law and order. So he set up something called the Peace Preservation Force in 1814 and a system of county constabularies under the Irish Constabulary Act of 1822. This was was invented to keep rebelling Irish in their place and it proved so successful that it was transported back to England to deal with the new unruly urbanised working class. There was widespread moral panic at the time around the criminal nature of the working class. Bosses and other establishment figures were generally genuinely worried that there was going to be a workers uprising. So the modern police force proved to be an extremely popular solution to these problems, meaning right at its very formation, the police was never intended to protect all people from crime. They were invented to protect private property and oppress the working classes. Since then, I don't think the role of policing has dramatically changed. I just think they've got a lot better at doing PR. Whenever there is any dramatic upsurge in working class action or even social unrest, uh, the police and the rest of the criminal justice system are there to stamp it back down. As I say, we saw this sharply during the minor strike and more recently during the 2011 riots or the student uprising of kind of 2010-11. Obviously, we're not dealing with stuff like rioting or huge waves of industrial action every day, but still you can't divorce policing and the wider criminal justice system from questions of race and class. Working class people and especially BAME communities are actively oppressed by the police on a daily basis. Famously, stop and search is 10 times more likely to target black and ethnic minority people than their white counterparts. It's a violent and deeply humiliating practice um, for those who have to go through it. 
and it's been proven to be completely pointless in tackling things like violent crime. A 10% increase in stop and search would only yield a 0.1% decrease in violent crime. And these figures, um, these, sorry, these findings are taken from the Met Metropolitan Police's own data. Stop and search also leads to people ending up in the criminal justice system who really have no business being there. For example, I heard a story a while ago about a young black man in Manchester who had been stopped and searched four times in the same day. As anybody would, by the fourth time he lost his temper and um, re refused to be searched. An argument broke out um, and the young man who was clean, by the way, had nothing found on him, ended up being arrested and charged for refusing to comply with an officer's orders. This kind of stuff is a daily occurrence if you are part of an over-police community. Um, it's so scary that the police are effectively given the right to act with impunity. Um, there has never been a successful manslaughter prosecution brought against the law enforcement officer in the UK following a death in police custody, despite the fact that there has been more than 1,500 deaths in police custody since 1990. Between 1998 and 2009, only one police officer was found guilty of any offence relating to a death in police custody, and that was misconduct in public office. Unsurprisingly, it's also clear from the records that BAME people are um, most at risk of dying at the hands of the police. According to a report by the charity Inquest, BAME people are twice as likely to die in custody from force and or restraint related injuries than their white counterparts. You just have to look at our recent, um, at our, our recent gang panic to understand how deeply institutionally racist the entire criminal justice system is. We have, we've invented in an entire problem that really just doesn't exist and we use it as a way to disproportionately lock up black and brown men. In the words of an unnamed senior Met officer speaking to Amnesty International recently, gangs are for the most part a complete red herring. Fixation with the term is unhelpful at every level. This basic statement is also echoed in the findings of academics like Patrick Williams and Becky Clark in their studies Dangerous Associations, Joint Enterprise Gangs and Racism. The, raise, the, the rise of the gang's discourse can be, straight, can be quite straightforwardly traced back to the 2011 riots. In their aftermath, the then Home Secretary, Theresa May, desperately looking for anybody but herself to blame, incorrectly named gang activity as the main driver behind the violence. This claim has been thoroughly debunked today, but it did set in motion the Home Office's pledge to allocate extra funding to police forces who could prove they had a gang problem. This in turn led to one of the most controversial tools in modern policing, the UK Gang Matrix. So the Gang Matrix is a database of around 4,000 individuals. Um, I believe it's probably more now because that figure is from 2017 and figures tend to rise rather than go down in these cases. Um, and so these 4,000-ish individuals are people who are deemed to either be in a gang at risk of engaging in, in gang activity or somehow linked to gangs. This description already seems broad to the point of uselessness, but gets much worse when you take into account the fact that the Met has no clear definition of what a gang is. So the matrix takes a number of variables like prior offences, age at first contact with the police, patrol logs, social media activity, friendship groups, and even taste in music, then applies a mathematical formula to that information that most of us, including the police who use it, don't understand. This is used to determine an individual's so-called risk score. 
78% of people on the matrix are black, while black people are only responsible for around 27% of serious youth crime. According to an assessment seen by The Guardian, more than 40% of young people on the matrix from Haringey, North London, were deemed to pose zero risk of causing harm. Some are assessed as being much more likely to be victim than offender, but the matrix doesn't differentiate between victim and offender or violent and non-violent. You're just a name, a score, and the word gang. Obviously, algorithms are only as impartial as the assumptions that they're based on um, and, the, and the society that they exist within. Yet there is no accountability for them when it comes to their use in policing. Once you're on the matrix, it's next to impossible to find out why you're on it or how to get off it. And it has a chilling effect on the lives of the people who end up on it. So data in the matrix doesn't just stay there. It's shared with third parties such as the courts, the DWP, local authorities, educational institutions, and even potential employers. Then thanks to the Anti-Social Behaviour, Crime and Policing Act of 2014, it can be used to punish your friends and your family for crimes you haven't even committed. So according to a 2019 Wired article, one family received a letter warning they would be evicted from their home if their son didn't stop his involvement with gangs, but he'd already been dead for more than a year. A disabled mother's council provided car was seized after her son, who acted as her carer and was registered to drive that car, was arrested without charge or any further action. Another boy who found himself on the, on the gang matrix because a friend of his was arrested ended up being forced out of his mother's house and put into a residential care home. He was later banned from attending the South London Learning Centre because he was on the matrix. Apparently, these days, being in a gang mostly boils down to being black, liking drill music, having friends with convictions and behaving aggressively on social media. Apart from the obvious exception of being black, by those parameters, I think I might qualify as a gang member. But on a serious note, institutional, um, sorry, but on a serious note, Amnesty International identified the matrix as part of a racialized war on gangs and describes it as stigmatizing black youngsters and violating human rights. Don't get me wrong, in the rare instance where gangs actually are the problem and children are caught up on them, caught up in them, they are subject to horrific abuse and, and exploitation. And I don't wish to minimize that. However, the police are almost completely ineffectual at, at dealing with those situations because they treat small time expendable members as criminals rather than victims who need protection. If your aim really was to take out an ant colony, you wouldn't attempt to do it one worker ant at a time. Um, so instead of actually trying to tackle the root cause of why people may end up in gangs, we're in a situation where a gang narrative is being used as a straw man to pin all of our fears on and justify the obscene over-policing of, of young black and brown men. The sharpest end of this can be found in our joint enterprise laws. So joint enterprise is the collective name um, for a group of laws that can see an individual convicted of a murder that they didn't commit or more alarmingly may not even have been present at. The idea is that if you had prior knowledge of or contributed in any way towards a murder, you are as culpable as the murderer themselves. Joint enterprise laws have actually been a feature of our common law for hundreds of years. However, their misuse in gang-related convictions has been making waves since the then Mayor of London, Boris Johnson, announced Operation Shield. 
Operation Shield was an initiative that would see all gang members punished if one carried out a violent crime. Remember, though, the parameters by which we identify gang activity are fundamentally flawed. Um, and those flaws are just as prevalent in joint enterprise cases. When Abdul Hafida was murdered in Mossside in 2016, for example, 11 young black boys were convicted of his murder, though only one actually stabbed the victim. Most of the defendants weren't even present at the time the stabbing took place, but because they were all, to a greater or lesser extent, involved in the chase and the fight that preceded the stabbing, they were all found guilty under joint enterprise laws. The gang narrative featured heavily during the court case, but no one who actually knows the boys believes they were members of a gang. According to an article from The Guardian, the evidence of gang membership brought, to, brought by prosecutors in joint enterprise trials is often of extremely questionable merits. In the Moss side case, the prosecution alleged that some of the defendants were linked to gang activity because of photos from their social media accounts in which they made what the prosecution claimed were gang hand signs. DCI Terry Compton, who led the murder investigation, said this evidence represented self-admission of gang membership. But according to the sister of one of the boys, they were just acting like rappers on social media. The Guardian article continues, the 13 defendants were not a particularly close group, but it was easy to find links between them. Moss Side has been the heart of Manchester's African Caribbean and African communities since the 1950s, and it was easy for the police to identify social or familial connections um, between the defendants, which were then characterised as gang associations. There's, there's a, there are huge racial disparities in both the use of joint enterprise convictions and the justification of those convictions under the guise of gang activity. According to Clark and Williams, almost two thirds of people convicted under joint enterprise laws report alleged gang activity being cited by the prosecution during the trial. 78.9% of ethnic minority joint enterprise prisoners are described as gang members by prosecutors, compared to only 38.5% of whites. Class also plays a significant role in the way communities are policed. For obvious reasons, race is the area most studied when it comes to policing. Um, so I tend to focus my talk here because it's where you have the most data. Um, however, we're not stupid. We understand that over-policing is also a problem in white working class communities. You just have to look at the way ASBOs uh, were used to criminalise large numbers of, of working class youth. We understand that people in the home counties are not being actively policed in the same way people in poor areas of Glasgow, for example, will be. And again, this kind of uneven policing has an, an extremely detrimental effect on working class communities. We lock up more individuals than any other Western European country, yet our crime rates continue to soar. More people than ever are being imprisoned, yet our rates of rehabilitation are heartbreaking. 44% of adults released from prison are reconvicted within a year. And it seems that prison as a form of punishment, as opposed to community service or, or other punitive actions, actually increases your chances of reoffending. 26% of the prison population is BAME, yet BAME people only make up around 14% of the wider population. I'm not naive. I understand that you can't abolish the police and the prison system overnight if you don't wish to plunge society into dangerous chaos. You really need to have the right social infrastructure in place first. Life would get a lot worse for uh, working class people if the police suddenly disappeared. 
But the mark of any progressive society should be our ability to shrink the police more and more. Um, in the immediate, we'll do that by rebuilding and extending things like the welfare state, the NHS, uh, social care, so on. In the long term, I think the only way you will completely get rid of the police is um, by completely reorganising society so it's based on human need and not profit. I can't take any socialist seriously who is not also an abolitionist. Um, Self-proclaimed socialists calling for more police at the drop of, of a hat, like it's the only option on the table, rather than treating the police as the very last option on the table as they should be, is a massive betrayal of working class and BAME communities. Um, that these people claim to fight for. So in summation, fuck the police. Um, it's our duty as socialists to be extremely critical of and ultimately very hostile towards them. And I'm done.